We're in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13 today. So if you still use a paper copy of the Word of God, let me encourage you to open up to that, or uh, you can use the YouVersion app on your phone, whatever your preference is. I will put the passages on the screen as well. Uh, But let's just begin this morning by reading together what we at this church believe to be the living, inspired, authoritative, and inerrant Word of God that is our perfect guide for faith and practice. Amen? Amen. So let's uh, let's read this together. We're Again, we are in Mark chapter 1. Uh, the message title this morning is In Step with the Spirit. I think you'll see why as we work through these verses together. But let's begin just by reading this passage. Just five, five verses today, right? 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Yep, five verses. Had to count to make sure. All right. Let's read it together. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So Mark, like the Apostle John, just to remind you, I think I covered this uh, in the very first message when I gave you some introductory background on Mark's gospel, but Mark, like the Apostle John, does not write about the birth narrative or the early years of Jesus's life. If you want that, you need to go to Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And of course, I would encourage you to do that, to know those passages well. But Mark dives right into, after he talks about John the Baptist in chapter 1, the ground we covered last week, he dives right into the ministry of Jesus Christ, his public ministry, what we call his public ministry. All that Mark really mentions for us here as far as backstory in verse 9 is that Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee, as the text says. And Nazareth, as I'm sure you know, is a very small, obscure little village, uh, basically in the southwest region of Galilee. It's interesting, isn't it? How interesting it is that the eternal Son of God makes his appearance in a very rural setting, an obscure setting, and not in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, It's just it's an interesting idea that this is where Jesus is born, and and he appears born in Bethlehem, but this is where he, you know, grows up, and and his formative years are spent here. And, And it would seem from the silence of the Gospels during those years that Jesus lived a pretty normal life well into his late 20s. Being the oldest son of a mother who uh, we assume was a widow, he would have cared for the financial needs of the family. Uh, Assuming the responsibility for Joseph's business, the family business, once Joseph passes away. However, then his public ministry begins, and the remainder of his life would be absolutely anything but normal, as we all know. And, and the baptism of Jesus, as we look at this passage today, the baptism of Jesus is of such significance 
that all four gospel authors talk about it. And that's not, that's not true of many things in the life of Christ. Uh, there's a lot of ground that John, for instance, covers that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't, and vice versa, right? When I learned about all this in seminary and studied the Gospels, I learned that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels, and John uh, is, is a different type of Gospel. And so they all cover different areas and different things. And But this is one story, the baptism of Jesus, that's covered by all four gospel authors. So if you'd like the parallel passages, you can jot this down, but Matthew chapter 3 is where you would want to look. You'd want to look in Luke chapter 3, and you would want to look in John chapter 1. And that's where you can find the other gospel authors' um, recording of the baptism of Christ. So why was Jesus baptized? Let's jump in with this idea. Why was he baptized? Why did Jesus seek baptism? Mark doesn't uh, help us uh, answer this question, but thankfully Matthew does. Uh, Mark's account, as we just read through those verses, is very quick. It's very brief. Basically, he tells us that it happened. But Matthew uh, gives us a little bit more of the dialogue that happens between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And if you look at Matthew's uh, take on this, if you look at Matthew's account of his baptism, as we will here, uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, right? At first, John the Baptist is opposed to baptizing Jesus. Matthew records for us, John would have prevented him. John the Baptist is who he's talking about. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? You see, John the Baptist is very well aware of the dynamic here. He's very well aware of who Jesus is, and and his uh, understanding of the situation is, I need to come to you for baptism, and, and you're coming to me to be baptized. Now, think about it. Why would someone who was completely sinless, as we believe here at Fellowship, we believe that Jesus Christ lived a totally perfect, totally sinless life. Amen? And so why would someone who is completely sinless do something that symbolized personal repentance from sin? And, and this is the dynamic that John the Baptist sees. He's like, you're, you're the spotless lamb of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the son of God. And you're coming to me to be baptized. And so Jesus answers him. And again, you know, Matthew helps us here. If we look at the very next verse in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus replies, or Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Let it be so now. I, I think what Jesus is saying, yeah, John, you do need to be baptized me in a whole different way. But for this moment, let, let it be so now. Baptize me, John. Do this for me. Do this service for me because it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness. Now, what does that even mean? How would Jesus being baptized fulfill all righteousness? There's probably at least a few answers to this question. I know there's at least a few answers to this question. One commentary I have on my shelf that I looked at, uh, the author gave eight reasons how Jesus was fulfilling all righteousness by being baptized by John. 
And I thought about giving you all eight of those reasons. And I thought, no, I can't do that to them. So if you want more, let me just tell you, they're, they're out there, okay? But for this point in the sermon, I'm just going to give you one. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness by being baptized by John? Let me just give you this one. He's identifying with us. He's fulfilling all righteousness by being baptized by identifying with sinful humanity. Jesus did not have any sin to confess, not a one. Not one sin in his heart or in his life to turn from and to repent of. And yet he identifies with the sinful people that he came to save. This, to me, church, is one of the most beautiful things about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus got down in the mud to play with us. He identified with us. That's what the incarnation is all about. He became a man, the eternal Son of God. Commercial break. There's a heresy out there right now that's just rehashed... um, New Age, and the New Age movement was just rehashed Hinduism. And, and I, I have a personal connection to this uh, through a family member who started going to a church that, that was teaching this. But the idea that they're trying to separate, distance the historical person of Jesus Christ, the Jesus of history from the eternal Christ. They're trying to put a line there. And and this is a heresy that's out there right now. In other words, there was the historical Jesus, and then there's the eternal Christ. And and this is all an attempt. Let me warn you of this, church. As, As a shepherd protects the flock, if you'll allow me to do that for a moment. This is all in all an attempt to preach a doctrine that would say that there can be one religion One religion, and it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're a Muslim or you're a Hindu, all of these paths lead to the same destination. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen? Amen. So we need to realize that the, the historical Jesus, the Jesus that we learn about in the pages of Scripture, is the eternal Christ, is the eternal Son of God, and there's no other path to God except through him. So, fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness through the incarnation. The eternal Son of God puts on flesh, and he identifies with sinful humanity. It's so important to combat that heresy that's out there right now. Jesus didn't have one single sin to confess of, nothing to repent from, and yet he identifies with us. Now, why is this so essential? Let me throw out a lifeline to someone so much smarter than me. Uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul says it so well. He says, just as the first Adam, what do we call him in Scripture? Adam. Yeah, that, that was easy. Just as the first Adam represented the whole human race, and by his sin plunged the whole of humanity into corruption and death. The new Adam, what do we call him in Scripture? Not so easy. Jesus. This is Romans chapter 5 that we get this from. The new Adam also was a representative. 
And by his obedience, he redeemed his people for eternity. Uh, Dr. Sproul continues to explain. He says, our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, not only needed to die, he had to live a life of perfect obedience. This is so important, church. Don't, don't fall asleep on me right now. This is huge. The righteousness that he manifested could then be transferred to all who put their trust in him. Let me personalize this, or let Dr. Sproul personalize this. He says, just as my sin is transferred to him on the cross when I put my trust in him, his, Jesus's, righteousness is transferred to my account in the sight of God. So when I stand before God on the judgment day, God is going to see Jesus and his righteousness, which will be my cover. That is the gospel, Dr. Sproul writes. Amen. Church, that's good news, that our sin is taken from us and paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ, but it is good news that his righteousness is extended from him and put into my account so that when the righteous judge looks at me, he does not see my sin. He sees the perfect righteousness of his perfect son. That's good, good news. This is the argument that the Apostle Paul lays out for us in Romans chapter 5, where we get the, the idea of the first Adam and the second Adam that we were talking about. In, in just one verse here from Paul, but he says, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. But we need to get back to Mark chapter 1. Next here we see that the supernatural invade the natural world. Let's just look at, uh, look at verse 10 with me here in Mark chapter 1. And when he came, this is Jesus being baptized, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. We're going to talk about that word in a minute. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, one thing that we know, we Baptists um, should notice and that we should smile about, is it seems pretty clear here that John the Baptist baptized people by immersion, right? And so I think we're doing this biblically here at this church. Take that, you sprinklers. No, I'm just kidding. I, I'm just kidding. If there are any Catholics out there, i got great love for you. But we're doing it right here. That's all i got to say. So, you know, Jesus comes back up out of the water, right? But look at the supernatural spectacle that accompanies the presence of the Holy Spirit on this scene. This is so cool. This Greek word here is schizo. We get a lot of words in English from the schism, schizophrenic, right? There's lots of words that have popped out of this Greek word, but it means to tear open or to rip open, to divide by the use of force. And this is what God does to the sky, at this moment. The sky is forcefully torn open. Uh, this is an indication in Scripture, by the way, of something we call a theophany. Again, that's, that's two Greek words combined, theos and, sorry, can't pull it up. Uh, but anyway, two words that are put together that mean an appearance of God. So a theophany is an appearance of God. And, and when God forcefully rips the sky open, can't even imagine what that looks like because I think about it and I think, well, what's behind sky? More sky, right? <laughs> but, so I don't know what this would have looked like, but God rips the sky open and then what happens? 
the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. And this is imagery, again, used to describe the theophany here. The presence of the Holy Spirit on Jesus, on the Messiah, is promised in the Old Testament. Let me just show you just a couple passages here. Uh, They both come from Isaiah's prophecy. And here it's written, "...in the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him," speaking of the Messiah, right? So this is proof, this is evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then in chapter 42, uh, Jehovah speaking through Isaiah says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, Now here I need to be very sure that we do not fall into a different theological heresy called adoptionism. This is one that the church has faced through the centuries, and every once in a while I hear well-meaning people uh, say or imply things like this. And so I just want to, again, shepherd you and guard you against some of these heresies that can attack the church at different times. But Jesus did not become the Son of God at his baptism. Here's what this heresy would teach, that Jesus was born, he was a man, which is true, he was born and he was a man. But the heresy would teach then at this moment, when he's baptized by John in the river, God tears the sky open, the Holy Spirit descends on him. At that point is when he becomes the Son of God. No, that is absolutely wrong. This is not the point in which Jesus Christ becomes the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. From eternity past, eternally begotten by the Father. You can go as far as you would like backwards in time. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. And I could keep saying that for another hour. And you could get to that point in the timeline of history and Jesus would still be there. You could go to the point of time in which time itself was created and then go back 10 million more years and Jesus would still be there. He is the eternal Son of God. So make sure that we understand this correctly. We do not want to fall into this heresy. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. We need to be clear, church, and we need to be resolved on these foundational truths. We can have great love, great communion for other denominations, other brothers and sisters in Christ that go to different types of churches who worship our Jesus in a different way in other denominations, but there are certain theological foundational truths that we can never, ever bend on. Because if we do, we're no longer talking about Christianity. If I got up here today, sorry, I'm taking another tangent. I'm going to try not to go too long today, but you guys got me preaching now. All right, so if I got up here, And I started to tell you about my life before fellowship, and I said I once danced in the Russian ballet. How many of you could possibly believe that? No, I don't see any hands in this room, right? Because this is not the body of a ballet dancer, right? I would be introducing myself to you in such a way that it's a lie. It matters what we say about God. It matters what we say about Jesus Christ. 
And if we represent him in a way that's not what Scripture says, then we're not talking about the same Jesus. That's why when we, and say Wesleyans or Methodists or Lutherans, when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the same person. But when we and Muslims are talking about Jesus, we're not talking about the same person. When we and Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus, we're not talking about the same person. When we and Mormons are talking about Jesus, we're not talking about the same person, church. We need to be well-grounded on these foundational theological truths. However, his baptism is a very significant moment. Just because this isn't when he becomes the eternal Son of God does not mean it's not significant. This is a very significant moment that inaugurates his public ministry and reveals the Father's pleasure on his Son. Pastor John Piper says it very, very well. He gives us wonderful imagery here to help us feel the significance of this moment when Jesus is baptized. Pastor Piper writes, When Jesus was baptized along with all the repenting people who wanted to be on God's side. Remember, those of you who have been baptized here or other places, you know this. One of the reasons that you're baptized is to proclaim to your brothers and sisters that you're on God's side. And when Jesus does this, right, it was though the commander-in-chief had come to the front lines, fastened his bayonet, strapped on his helmet, and jumped into the trench along the rest of us. And when he did that, his Father in heaven, who had sent him for this very combat, signified with the appearance of a dove that the Holy Spirit would be with him in the battles to come. That's the significance of this baptism. Jesus is aligning himself with us. He's saying, I'm not sinful like they are, but I'm on their team. I'm right there with them. I am their captain. That's the significance of the baptism. And then we see in verse 11 that that God the Father invades his creation. And these are always beautiful moments in Scripture. Mark chapter 1, verse 11, And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Notice here, church, that we see in this passage all three persons of the triune God present in this passage. The Father speaks, the Son is baptized, and the Spirit descends into him. The triune God is clearly seen here at the baptism of Jesus Christ. The Father says to Jesus, you are my beloved son. This is from uh, actually two Greek words, ho agapetos. Ho, ho is basically just one, or is the, and so agapetos is the Greek word that we translate uh, beloved or the one whom I love. Uh, it reminds us of that story in Genesis, doesn't it? The story in Genesis of a father who loved his son deeply, the son that he had been waiting for for so many years. And, and then God says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Isaac, in this Old Testament story in the book of Genesis, is a type of Jesus Type basically just means a representation of something to come. He foreshadows, this would be another way to say it, he foreshadows Christ. We look at the story of Isaac and we think, oh, that's like Jesus in the gospel, right? And that's going to come several hundred years after Isaac lives and dies. 
But in Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac, it foreshadows God giving his only son for the sins of the world. And God, as we know this story from Genesis chapter 22, God saved Isaac from death. God intervenes so that Abraham doesn't kill his son, but God allows the death of his own son for our redemption. How marvelous, friends, is the love of the Father for us. More on that in just a minute. But let's finish the passage first of all. Because next we see Mark using one of his favorite words, and you're going to get so familiar with this word as we work through Mark's gospel. But he uses one of his favorite words, conveying the urgency of the message. It's the Greek word euthus. And, and, and as we've said before, it means immediately, at once. As soon as this happens, as soon as God speaks, as soon as the Holy Spirit falls on Christ and, and God makes this proclamation for those that were there to hear, this is what we find in verse 12. The Spirit immediately, euthus, the Spirit at once drove him out into the wilderness. Well, that, that phrase, drove him, I need to explain that a little bit too. That's the Greek word ekbele. And ekbele is a very strong word. It means to force. It means to drive out, to expel. It's, it's actually the same word that Mark is going to use later to describe Jesus casting out demons. And, and here, Mark uses this word. He says, just as Jesus cast out demons, drove them out of the person they were inhabiting, so the Holy Spirit, when he comes into Christ and fills Christ, drives him into the wilderness. I think that's very important. Don't miss that significance. And what happens next is incredibly significant for the mission that Jesus came to fulfill. If we look at verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Matthew and Luke, again, Matthew and Luke will give much more detail here than Mark, and, and they'll tell at least some of the conversation that happened during this period of temptation between Satan and Jesus. And, and so let me encourage you, if you're not up on that, if you, if you don't know that passage well in the conversation and the, in the three temptations that Satan gives to Jesus during this time, please take a look at those parallel passages in Matthew and Luke's gospel. But I'm going to stick to what Mark writes here, uh, with this, but they, this would be, um, this is when we see, let me say it this way, our enemy, since the Garden of Eden, right, in full force, going after Christ, he's trying to dismantle his ministry right in the beginning, before he even gets rolling in his public ministry. And, and Satan, it's, the name itself is a Greek word. Satan is a Greek word, and it literally means the adversary. And here we see Satan come right up against Christ, trying to take him out. Mark gives us a very brief summary of this encounter. Uh, I just want to kind of zero in on this idea of 40 for just a moment, though, that we see here, because it's 40 days that they are in the wilderness and Satan is tempting Jesus, because there is such symbolic significance from this 
from the Old Testament. I just want to make sure that you guys see this and understand this. Moses spent 40 days on Mount Sinai, Sinai with God, neither eating or drinking. So there's one parallel from the Old Testament. Elijah spends 40 days on Mount Horeb. But probably the most significant Old Testament parallel is when Israel spends 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And I think this is the reason why it's a 40-day period that Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. During that 40 years that Israel is wandering in the wilderness, how, how can I say this lightly and gently? They failed miserably. They, Israel failed miserably during that 40 years. They, they, they lived in disobedience and, and unbelief. Um, the psalmist writes beautifully about this in Psalm 95. And he writes about this concern, writes about this time period where Israel is in the wilderness. And he says, do not harden your hearts. He's speaking to the people of Israel as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put, put me to the proof. Though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation. This is God speaking and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what is the significance then, church, of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness? It's simply this. Israel failed. Jesus wins. Israel does not do well during their period of temptation and trial. Jesus Christ is successful, and he stands up against Satan, and he defeats the enemy in the wilderness, standing up against everything that Satan can throw at him confirms that where Israel had failed, Jesus would be successful. So I would like to just very quickly, as we close today, as we've worked through these verses now, offer you three points of application. And these are all on your note sheet if you're utilizing that. But three points of application in closing. First of all, this. Know that God deeply loves you. Know that God deeply loves you. Brothers and sisters, know that God deeply loves you. Pastor Terry, why do you keep saying that? Because some of you don't believe it. Because some, sometimes life is really, really hard. And we go through things where we doubt the love of God in our lives. It, it, it could be a million different things, and so I'm not even going to go there. You know what it is for you. You know what it is that causes you to doubt and to struggle with knowing and feeling God's intense and passionate love for you. The Bible tells us that God loves us. That truth is repeated over and over and over throughout Scripture. I, we would be here till one o'clock if I were going to walk through all of those passages. But if you struggle to believe this, I do want to offer some Scripture to you this morning to remind you of the love of God. Let's start with the people of Israel. His love for Israel. He said to them through Isaiah, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. So what do we learn from this? From the very moment that God had a people, he loved them. 
Throughout history, throughout Old Testament history, history, he loved Israel. The prophet Zephaniah wrote, The Lord your God is in your midst. Oh, we sang this song, actually. How, how cool is that? A mighty one who will save. He, God, will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. But God doesn't just love Israel. God loves the entire world. In this verse that probably so many of you have memorized, you know this verse, but do you believe this verse? Do we really believe this? In those tough moments, in those difficult times of our life, do we feel this? Do we meditate on this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life, depending on the translation you memorized it in. Brothers and sisters, he loves us. He loves the church. Just like he loved his people Israel, he loves the church now because now we are the people of God. We've been grafted in to spiritual Israel, and now we're part of that people of God. And his love for us is intense. Again, I just want to share a few more passages with you so you believe this. Let If you can't trust in your circumstances, Trust today in God's word. Trust, choose to trust. Lord, I don't know that I feel it right now, but I'm going to trust in what your word says. And God's word says, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Later in Romans, Paul writes, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, we read this during Scripture reading. We don't, we don't plan all this, by the way. Uh, this is God that does this, because I know I don't send out what I'm going to preach to anybody, uh, you know, other than the PowerPoint team and, and that kind of thing. So um, I just I love it when we sing a song that fits with the message or because it's the Holy Spirit at work, as far as I know. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Rest in this church. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's rest in that. Let's know that even when we don't feel that. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to brothers and sisters like us in the church of Ephesus and he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then the Apostle John, just a couple more, John writes to the church and he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we would be called the children of God, and so we are. John writes, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And then later on in chapter 4, he says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation. Hard word to say, hard word to know. That's a, it's a big word. But he sent his son to be the payment, to be the ransom, to take the place of our sins. That's how we know that we're loved. And so can I encourage you today, if you're really wrestling with that, this is foundational 
to our faith. If, if you get nothing else out of the message today, because quite frankly, and, and listen, I've been there. I've walked into churches when I wasn't the one preaching. Well, let me be honest. I've walked into church when I was the one preaching, and all I could think about was my circumstances. All I could think about is that, that thing that I, I couldn't get my mind off of and I was struggling with and I was wrestling with. And so if you get nothing else out of this Sunday morning, would you please rest in the truth of God's Word? If you believe that this book is the Word of the living God, rest in the truth that you are dearly, dearly loved today, no matter what is happening in your life. God deeply loves you. Second of all, be heavenly-minded so that you are some earthly good. Now, some of you are thinking, "Mm, Pastor Terry, you really got that saying wrong, (laughs) right? Because how does it go, really? You know, oh, he's so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. That's the context that you normally hear that. That's how you normally hear people say that. I would radically disagree with how that saying is normally said. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. I would just disagree with that. I, I believe that if we were more heavenly-minded, then maybe we actually would be some earthly good. That's what I found to be true in my life. Bible scholar N.T. Wright, the quote is there for you on the screen. Dr. Wright says, heaven in the Bible often means God's dimension behind ordinary reality. What he's saying is sometimes when the Bible uses the word heaven or the heavens, it's just talking about the sky. You know, in the heavens are the stars, right? You know, you'll see that in the Psalms and that kind of thing. But when when we're talking about God and where God dwells and all of that, right, Dr. Wright's saying it's this dimension that's behind ordinary reality. Well, here's, here's the point for us as Christians, as Christ followers. A good deal of Christian faith is a matter of learning to live by this different reality, even when we can't see it. We need to learn to keep heaven in mind, to live by that reality. And if we do that, we will be more earthly good. I I completely agree here with, with what Dr. Wright's saying, because I know from my own experience, the more that I live with my eyes set toward heaven, the more good I am compelled to do. When I get focused on the stuff of earth and, and all of the things I have to do and all my tasks and, right, and everything that, that draws our hearts away from God and, and, and we get so consumed with the stuff of this life. Am I all alone in here? Is anybody else with me today? Anybody else struggle with that or is it just me? Okay, I'm seeing some hands. But the more that I keep my eyes towards this reality that exists underneath our reality, heaven, more I keep my eyes toward that day when I will be in the presence of Christ in reality, the more earthly good I am compelled to do. And so I want to keep my eyes there. I want this different reality, church, to shape my perspective, my thinking, and my priorities. Would anybody else agree today? I want to keep my focus there. I want it to guide my actions and my words. I want heaven, that reality, to determine my schedule every single day and to set my priorities and goals for the future 
until Jesus calls me home. And then finally, my third point of application I would suggest to you today is very simply with this, and with this one we'll close. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ did. The Holy Spirit comes on him, and the Holy Spirit drives him out. Listen, no one was ever closer to the Father. No one was ever led more by the Holy Spirit than Jesus Christ. Jesus did absolutely nothing without the Holy Spirit or apart from the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever think that we could live faithfully and do what God wants us to do from the pages of Scripture without the guidance of the Holy Spirit? without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The the Apostle Paul wrote this to the church in Galatia. It's on the screen for you right now. He says this. It's two different verses from chapter 5 in Galatians. But he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If we live by the Spirit, Paul writes, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. These three things, let me encourage you to take these away from our message this morning. First of all, know that God deeply loves you. Second of all, be heavenly minded. Keep your eyes towards heaven. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep focused on God so that you will be compelled to do more earthly good. But realize, church, you can't do that if you're not staying in step with the Holy Spirit. Would you bow your heads, please, and and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. Let's just close out this morning with a song. We're going to sing a beautiful song here in in worship in response to his word today. But I want to just, as they come, the wonderful news of this idea, the wonderful news of this church is that the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who fell on Jesus at his baptism. The same Holy Spirit that was poured out on the believers in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, that same Holy Spirit still empowers us today to live the lives that we are called to live. We must abide with Jesus Christ in the presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let me just ask, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come to the front or anything like that, but just you and the Lord for a moment. Is God speaking to you in some way this morning? And maybe it is what I shared earlier. Maybe for where you're at today, where you're at this point in your life, you you just need to learn to rest in the love of God. You just need to learn to be comfortable with the idea that you are the agapetos, you are the beloved of God. And, and that's, your, that's your takeaway for this morning. That's okay. That's a beautiful takeaway. And, and maybe that's what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about today. For others in the room, you, you know that. You've, you live in that. You live in that place. And, and maybe for you, it's to put your eyes back towards heaven so that you would be driven to be more earthly good here. Maybe for others, it's it's this idea of staying in step with the Holy Spirit, not trying to do this in your flesh, not trying to live the Christian life by your own personal will, 
willpower, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, all those things that we always say, right? But reliance on the Holy Spirit. I just want to, before we sing together, I want to just give you a moment of silence. And those listening to us online right now, you take this moment of silence too and just ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit, what would you say to me today? God, I'm willing to listen. I want to hear your voice. I want to hear your voice in my life. Just take a moment. 